Hi there, I'm David Harvey, and I'm here with John Andrews, and this is the Two Techs Podcast. In this podcast, we're two friends in two different countries, here with you every two weeks talking about two different texts from the Bible. In this season, as we enter our second year of podcasting together, we step beyond the stories of Jesus in the Gospels and into the Book of Acts. The Book of Acts is a series of stories and events from the early church when they encounter the disrupting presence of the Holy Spirit. So, John, this is part six of chapter two <laughs> that we're getting into now. So, there's a lot in this chapter, isn't there? <laughs> there's a lot in this. And, and our, our listeners may be getting a bit of an inkling of what we're like as preachers. So, they think, oh, no, those are, those are the guys who just keep going. But yeah, it's, we're, we're very excited by the text and, and you just peel away these layers and they're just lovely, really, and, and, and worth taking our time on, you know. There is something about slowing down and spending time in the text and even something about just continuing to revisit the same texts and seeing them in different lights. I mean, John, you would say the same as, as me, that in the process of doing this work on texts that are quite familiar to us, we're seeing new things just in the process of our conversations. So it's beautiful little insight into why scripture is not a one and done reading project. Absolutely. And and also I'm sure you find this at local church when I get the opportunity in my ministry to maybe spend three, four, five sessions on one theme or one text, the amount of feedback I get from people just saying, oh, it's been so good to just peel that back a little bit and take our time on that and not just try and squeeze that into a 25, 30 minute sermon on a Sunday morning, but, but actually take a bit of time to unpack. So there is, I'm, I'm a great believer in sort of expositional teaching. I, I love the idea of just let's, let's spend six or seven weeks if we can, or six or seven Mm -hmm. sessions or whatever on a, on a, a singular passage of scripture and allow the sort of juices to marinate out of that and and into that. So it's j- yeah. just gorgeous. I, I think it's a it's a lovely thing to be able to do. And and we have the privilege of just doing what we love, chatting to each other about the Bible and Jesus yeah. and the church. So it's lovely. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. So True. we left it's Peter at the end of his long sermon, didn't we? And we did. uh, he's so this first sermon of the Christian church and and we sort of left it and we're about to hear what the response of the sermon is. Mm. And if you've read through Acts before, then you probably know, but it's always worth noting that Acts offers a variety of insights into the types of responses you can get from a sermon. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> and in Acts, a sermon is the sort of thing that can get yourself killed. So you've always <laughs> got to pay attention to, to how, or it can start a riot, or it can, <laughs> or a revival. <laughs> Indeed. For sure. Absolutely. So so we're going to read Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through to 41. John, do you want to read that? I'd love to. I'd love to. So here we go. It says this, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all 
whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Great so, a, a really good, a really good response from your first sermon, and, and uh, preachers, preachers around the world feeling feeling like their first sermons perhaps are not as good as. <laughs> indeed, indeed, that, which is always a good reason why not to compare yourself to people. You end up comparing apples to oranges, and <laughs> you think, my goodness. So yeah, my my first sermon, six points, all beginning with the letter C from Jeremiah chapter one. I was fourteen years of age, and I think I managed to preach that in about three and a half minutes or something. And uh, there are people listening to me today that think, oh, John, I wish you would go back to your three and a half minute sermons. But but yeah, that, that was, it was not, it was not a glorious experience, but a, a great one nonetheless. A great one nonetheless. I think, I think for me, David, I, I, one of the things that jumped out immediately to me when we, when we were sort of started reading from verse 37 was, uh, it's another question. Mm-hmm. Um, so this whole sort of Peter's sermon begins with a question, doesn't it? Like, what does this mean? And so yes. the crowd are asking when they see the outpouring of the Spirit, what does it mean? And then we get this other beautiful question, which sort of then prompts Peter to go into this, what you may call an appeal scenario. And mm-hmm. they ask the question, what shall we do? Isn't that beautiful? Yes. We, we've moved yes. from, hey, what does this mean to, okay, now that you've explained what this means, what shall we do? And it, it does show us that Peter's sermon, the content of that sermon, and we've reflected on the sermon in general and some of the fantastic Old Testament allusions within his text, mm-hmm. um, that it does connect with his audience, that they are definitely connecting the dots, that these great references to Joel and the Psalms and the prophet David and the messianic accreditation of Jesus has connected and that they are cut to their heart when this whole idea that not only is Jesus Messiah, but somehow directly or indirectly you had a part in his destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love then the question, okay, what do we need to do? I love this. And and, and certainly for me as a teacher, preacher, I, I do love the fact that when you teach and preach, you get questions. You, you, you want people yes. to ask the right sort of question. I know there are questions that can be asked that take us down cul-de-sacs, but I love this question because this question is really leading us into a place of freedom and application. What do we need to do now? You've explained this. So, so where do we go? And I, and I love that, that we've got two gorgeous questions that sort of top and tail this sermon Mm. sort of thing. I I've long thought that the, the most important question at the end of any sermon is so what, right? And then he, this is a, so what, so what should we do? We started doing this thing at my church where we pause the sermon about two thirds of the way through now and, and have a dialogue in our congregation. And wow. so, so we will simply, we'll simply say, okay, who's got any questions about what we're saying? And, and we, and we often, and we help our congregation think of questions by, by pointing, we use a frame of three C's because, you know, we are Pentecostal. So, <laughs> so we have three C's, which is conflict, clarity, and confusion, right? And we, you know, does the sermon bring you some conflict? Has it brought you some clarity? Or are you confused about something? But then we ask the question, and maybe what is the Holy Spirit saying to you in this? And John, we have some phenomenal moments at the end of, or at this point in of dialogue in the sermon of, of, of actually Really, what we're trying to do is is break away from the idea that the pastor gives a lecture and we all go home. 
but really that actually we are in dialogue as a community and that so what question a question forces you i think to think what am i supposed to do with this what am i what so this again i think we see peter's sermon is giving us a sort of model for what sermons should be like, right? And I think you see this throughout Acts. The sermon's pointing us to Jesus. It's making sense of the story that we find ourselves in, but using Jesus as a lens. And it leads us to a response. And I think it's interesting when you were saying that, I was thinking about in Acts 17, there's there's the, the famous Berean believers. And, and Paul goes to the synagogue and verse 11 says, these ones, these, these people were more open than those in Thessalonica because they welcomed the message eagerly and examined scripture every day to see whether these things were so. Mm-hmm. And and I, and I love this image that we're seeing throughout Acts of, of the impact of a sermon, that people yeah. are are saying, oh, okay, the way to understand what someone's saying is, does it line up with scripture? And what does it call us to do? Mm-hmm. I just think for for maybe you've got a pastor or a preacher in your life who asks that question, so what yeah. at the end of every sermon? Mm-hmm. But if they don't ask that question, I think we should always be cognizant of that is our job. We should ask that question at the end. And maybe it's obvious when you ask the question, oh, I know how to respond. Or maybe go and speak to your pastor afterwards and go, hey, thanks for that teaching. What what do you think I should do with that? Here's where I'm at. I I don't think that's disrespectful to a sermon. I actually think it says, so what could sound disrespectful, but I think that's what you see in Acts is sermons are given to elicit responses in our hearts, aren't they? Completely, completely. And and years ago, I was, when I was starting off, someone said to me that, that even the way we communicate the word of God, that there should be some internal type of reasoning that leads to questions mm. that, that when you're bringing something to a community, you're thinking about something you want them to know. So know mm. what, and yes. why is that important? So what, and then what do you want them to do with it? Now what? So mm. you, you, within, even, even today, I'm still broadly guided by those ideas. What do I want? What do I think's important for a community of people to hear from this particular text? Why is that important for them to hear that? And now what does it look like? Where does it go? I, I, I often ask the question, right? What does that look like? So when we, when we land on an idea as a personal follower of Jesus, I'm asking, what does that, what does that look like then mm-hmm. to work that out? And, and I think that is a dynamic part of discipleship that we are not only open to receive questions, and of course that's a challenge for some settings where we don't encourage questions because we see questions Mm. as maybe troublesome or even rebellious when actually questions are all part of dynamic learning, provided they are appropriate and right questions. There There are unhelpful questions, but if we're asking the right sort of question with the right sort of heart, that's all part of this learning dynamic. And as, mm. as communicators, preachers, teachers, we should be building questions into our sermons directly or indirectly. There should mm-hmm. be something that we're lining up that will provoke questions. And mm-hmm. we mustn't be afraid of that. And that doesn't mean that we have to have even every answer to the question, but, but at least it creates, and I love what you're doing, it creates conversation. 
It creates confidence in the conversation and it allows for a little bit of mess, but it also then gives opportunity for guidance and direction. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. these guys ask this question, these people ask this question, and Peter is ready with a very, very strong, clear, definitive sort of answer, which then in itself becomes a bit of a programmatic thing for us in the book of Acts. But I love the fact that it starts with a question, what what, what is this? What does this mean? And then it finishes with, okay, what do I need to do now? And I love that progression. I love the fact we've progressed from asking for it to be explained to now asking how it's exampled or practiced. And that's ultimately a beautiful trajectory for us, knowing, moving from something we know to something we do. I love that. Yes. I love that. And, and this little line in verse 40, he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them. So so the sermon has created this conversation, which Indeed. I think is is really exciting. And and I love what you said there, that, that Acts is, and Acts is modeling this to us. This is not rebellion from a people. We, we, we've got to get away from this idea that the preacher is is somehow untouchable. Uh, and I think I think across the world we can see the damage of what happens when when the preacher is is untouchable and and as you said there's bad ways and good ways to to, to deal with that but I think there's something there's something profound in what you see bouncing through acts of people mm. discussing unpacking and I think it's so important that we've got this this written word of God. They searched the scriptures the Bereans mm. did to see what was happening in this written word of God which is pointing us to the word of God, who is Jesus. And, mm. and that to me is, is, is it really where Christian community comes alive, actually. A group of people being pointed towards Jesus, asking the question, what should we do? <laughs> it's, it's, quite, it's, it's, it's quite gorgeous, actually. It is. It is. It's absolutely gorgeous. I had a question for you, John, just curious in your thoughts. Verse 38 Right. Mm-hmm. So, so Peter's initial response to them, right? What should we do is asked. And Peter said to them, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. So your sins may be forgiven and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting that Peter sort of does all of that in one big sentence. And, and I think many of our, our listeners might, you know, maybe have experienced all three of those things, but we have this tendency to sort of draw it out quite a lot in the contemporary world. And that might be a two or three year process that we've got mm-hmm. there. And I just, um, and without, you know, I don't want to corner any of us in, and we all come from different traditions as listeners and so on and so forth. But, but there's something, yeah. What do you, what are your kind of responses? Let me not ask you a framed question there, yeah. but what are your sort of thoughts on just the kind of speed that Peter drops this on everybody. It's like, let's do this all straight away. Sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's very powerful. And and I think in in many ways, Peter, if you follow then the trajectory from Peter's words into the book of Acts, it, he it does seem to be setting up a sort of some normative ingredients for mm-hmm. the conversion understanding. This understanding mm-hmm. becoming a follower of the way seems to have these four key elements as either an expectation or as an experience in in order to engage. And quite often they are seen to happen relatively quickly together. Mm-hmm. And when there when certain elements haven't happened, there's a question as to why they haven't happened. Mm-hmm. So so now they don't always have to happen in a particular order, but but the elements of repentance, 
baptism in water and this understanding of that being an expression of forgiveness of sins and then being filled with the Spirit, these mm. elements all run together very quickly. I mean, without sort of sound, making it sound too corporate, which please, I hope it doesn't, but they almost seem like part of a package. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what, and the early church expectation seems to be if you express a change of mind towards Jesus, let's get you baptized in water like immediately. There's no yes. baptism class. There's no six-week gap. <laughs> it's straight yeah. in. And then the expectation is either after that or even before that, Cornelius's household are filled with the Spirit before they're baptized in water. There is mm-hmm. an expectation to be filled with the Spirit. So you get these dynamic ideas together. And I think it's because they are seen in many ways as essential markers of this this not only the experience of receiving Jesus, but of markers of joining this new way. There is a, a baptism dynamic that says we're being baptized into this new way, into this Jesus, mm-hmm. and then the power of the Spirit to empower us to live this new way and go forward. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me, David, that they are seen as essential ingredients to mm-hmm. what the language we may call a conversion experience. It's not just an issue of belief. It is an issue of belief and then baptism behavior and then this openness to the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do this believing, this following this community. And I know that in, in probably the next podcast, we're going to lean into this community, the 242 mm-hmm. stuff. And mm-hmm. and I, I think that's an essential idea that this is leading us towards living in community with a common identity and empowered by the Spirit to enable us. So mm-hmm. as as in modern church history, we have tended to separate these out hugely. Mm-hmm. And I think those gaps are both unhelpful and unnecessary. And I know that's a different conversation, but but I don't <laughs> think they're they're really helping followers of Jesus to engage with some of these core ideas. So yeah, I, 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 that would be my my yeah. reaction and, and, and as a reflection on that. As you were talking, I was thinking about the Ethiopian eunuch that we will again get to in Acts chapter Acts chapter nine, isn't it? And I'm saying nine, it's eight, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Forgive Easy me, Paul's nine, yeah. Yes, that's right. Excellent. And I will, I'll delete that from the podcast and nobody knows I got my axe chapters <laughs> muddled up. The, the Ethiopian eunuch, think about that story there, again, in terms of the model that we're seeing in Acts, Philip comes across this man reading scripture. And, 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 and the man says, well, I can read the scripture, but I can't understand the scripture. So Philip mm-hmm. says, well, let me show you how this scripture points you to Jesus. <laughs> The man's response then is, well, look, here's water. What's to stop me being baptized? And Indeed. and Philip essentially throws him in the water. And and I think it's interesting how we have a tendency within the contemporary church to say, oh, okay, well, you say you believe in Jesus. Let's see if you're serious about that. And if, yeah. if you appear serious about that, then we'll look at baptizing you. And then maybe we'll do some more classes in a few programs, and then we'll start talking about how God's spirit is, is with you. And I think it seems in Acts, the model is more like stuff the person full of God, get him in the water, and then let's kind of tidy up everything after that. Let's deal with it as we as we go along which i think we could we as modern christians could probably learn a lot about just being a bit messier and 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 actually being sometimes a bit more i mean i I, 
don't hear what I'm not saying, but a bit more impulsive, actually. Yep. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense. And and I think I think today's church, we tend to treat these elements, these conversion ingredients as progressional mm-hmm. instead of positional. Yes, yes. So if you've come to a place in Christ Jesus, there's nothing to stop you being baptized because baptism yeah. is not about understanding, okay, what baptism is. Baptism is simply yeah. a sign that you've believed and then, yes. and then we can unpack a, a deeper theology as we go, if that's necessary. And the power of the Spirit is nothing about you being a better Christian or having proved your stripes as a Christian or having sort of earned yeah. a little bit of progression as a Christian. Therefore, you now progress to the place where you can receive the Spirit. No, no, you're a child of God. Mm-hmm. As a child of God now, as part of this new way and this new covenant, you can receive the Holy Spirit, which Peter has just explained. That the Holy Spirit's for your sons, for your daughters, for the old men, for the young men, for anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. Mm. So we've tended to impose on this, and and please forgive me, it's not meant to be a, a, a judgmental criticism, but it's just an observation. We've imposed a progressional element onto this, mm. which is both unnecessary and unhelpful. And I would rather, if we were going to err on the side of any mistake here, I would rather get people, to use your quote, stuff full of God get them into the water, get them filled with the Holy Spirit, and then spend the next four, five, six months explaining what has happened Mm. rather than explaining something and then sort of giving them the option. Well, do you want to get baptized? Do you want to get filled with the Spirit? And then it becomes a bit of a, well, it's down to you. What, What would you like to do? And actually, here's Peter going, no, no, this is really not an option as part of this conversion experience. This is, this is, all part of the package you are buying into. Believe, repent, receive the forgiveness of sins, be baptized in water, be filled with the Spirit. It's all mm. part of this idea. And I think if we had much more confidence in the positional approach, mm. that the minute a man, a woman, a boy or a girl puts their trust in Jesus, they can and should, where possible, engage with all of these things as quickly as mm. possible and mm. not turn it into a drawn out progressional dynamic which tends to lead us into I think an unhealthy idea that you progress to baptism Mm -hmm. you progress Mm -hmm. to the filling of the spirit when actually none of those things are progressional ideas they are positional ideas we can receive those things because we are sons and daughters of God I've said in a few different contexts John and again this can sound a little harsh and that's not the tone that I'm wanting to take this is not a judgment on anybody mm. but i think observationally we should note that there are essentially no unbaptized christians in the new testament right mm-hmm. so and i'm and so sometimes that might if, if you hear that wrong that could sound like hey why are you not baptized what i mean it to, to say is that that what we see in the New Testament is a profession of faith in Jesus appears to be the only requirement <laughs> to find yourself in the water. And and right down to, again, I, I, I think you do see these situations where you have Acts 19, isn't it? You have, yep, you have yep. Paul appearing in, in Ephesus and bumping into people who, well, you know, who haven't, he- yeah, who mm-hmm. haven't heard of Jesus's baptism. Mm-hmm. And this is like, oh, okay, well, I probably need to, uh, probably need to do something about this then, mm-hmm. don't we? And, uh, and so, and I think there's also a moment uh, back in chapter two that I, I, 
this little phrase, they were cut to the heart, right? Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, it's, it's a beautiful little, like the Greek word kind of speaks to me, cut, pierced, stabbed even. Yeah. There is uh, an emotional response to this, mm. I think. I mean, that's what I read in that sort of text. Mm. This, is, this is something that gets downplayed a lot, I think, in, in contemporary Christianity. That, oh, 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 you know, this is, this is a brain. We're big believers in the brain, aren't we, in, in, in yeah. the modern world? I think, again, I'd love to hear your resonances of it, but for me, when I read 237, it reminds me that that the experience of encountering the good news of Jesus is a holistic experience. It's an experience not just of my head. There is an emotional, something's moved me. And so often I hear people say, oh, yeah, but they just responded in the emotion. Well, well. You are a human and humans have emotions. And here we have the people in Acts. Am I over pushing that, John? Or is there an emotional response driving this? No, no, I I think I I totally agree with that. And and I I think what really helps me in this is what's producing the emotional response. Mm. So we've reflected on verse 36, that actually it's this climactic statement that, Mm. that God attested God accredited that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. Mm, And it's that, it seems to be that truth which cuts to the heart. So, so for me, emotional response, emotional involvement, emotional engagement, I have no problem with that at all. I think that Mm -hmm. is going to be part and parcel of the human experience. But of course, what I'm keen on is that emotional response is being produced by truth, not by emotional manipulation. So, mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. And, and when you look at Peter Great here, there's point. no attempt to manipulate them. He, like, there's no, he's just, he's just calling it as it is. He's saying, this is what happened. This is who did it. This is why it happened. And this is what you need to do. Uh, and, and there's no, there's no manipulation of the audience with emotionalism in order mm-hmm. to produce a shallow emotional response, which I think sometimes mm-hmm. is the fear. Rather, this is an emotional response, in part, that is produced by a dynamic understanding of truth. Mm-hmm. And when, mm-hmm. when you get a revelation of truth, when Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God, I am pretty certain that is saturated with emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a revelation yeah. of truth. Yeah. But when he go, when he says that, my goodness, I think I think that must have been off the scale in the mm-hmm. context of of that moment. So we do not deny emotional responses or even an understanding of emotionalism, provided, of course, and this is where we would we would uh, certainly we we would want to take care. We don't simply want to produce an emotional response from mm-hmm. an emotional appeal. We want that emotional response to be produced by, if it's going to happen, by truth. Because then mm-hmm. when the when the cutting of the heart subsides, the decision to engage with truth continues. Yes. Which is sure. exactly then why Peter's pushing him towards baptism filled with the Spirit. He's now pushing him into, as it were, actions that yes. move their emotions to something solid. If yes. it's just emotion, this will disappear in five minutes. If this is truth yes. with emotion, then this mm-hmm. is going to last. Which speaks beautifully again to that question of what should we do? And, and, and it's amazing to me, John. I mean, I'm thinking about this section of chapter two, but how much guidance there is for us as Jesus followers attending a local church. I 
I think that I think of my experience and conferences cannot sometimes be the worst place for this, where there's there is a sermon which leads to a hugely emotional response. But by three o'clock the next afternoon, we kind of almost forgot what was said. We just had a, a nice time of feeling, right? Yeah. Here we have, oh, I'm cut to the heart. What should we do? So initially we know that there's clearly more than just emotion going on here because the response of the people is, I think you want us to do something as a result yes. of this. Even though there's emotion going on, I also feel that. And Peter's, I think we've talked about this elsewhere, repent to turn around. Literally, yeah. it means it means turn around. So the first thing is, well, we actually change is yeah. Peter's response to them. And here's what you're going to do to change is you're going to, you're going to get baptized. You're going to have your sins forgiven. You're going to move into the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's a very practical. So I love the way you framed that there. It's that the emotion is part of the journey of, of practical, actionable, responsible steps. So mm-hmm. if you're finding yourself pursuing sermons where there's strong emotional moments, but not a lot of difference in your life as a result. Something's not happening. That could be that you're not paying attention. Could be that the sermon's not structuring in a way that's healthy. So it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? How just reading this, this kind of response to a Pentecost sermon is guiding us practically as Jesus followers on what to experience in a teaching ministry. And I mean, I just think it just, we've said it so many times, but it just shows the layers of beauty within scripture. Yes, absolutely. And I think a little provocation, warning, encouragement to all of us as preachers, teachers, communicators, that if you're skilled in the art of communication, you can learn how to manipulate an audience Mm. with emotion, but that is not our job. Our job is not to manipulate people with emotion. Our job is to lead them to truth and to Jesus. Mm. And then if they have an emotional experience because they've engaged with Jesus or because they've been cut to the heart or because something in a revelatory moment has produced an emotional response, then that's wonderful. Because because then it's a truth response with emotion rather than an emotional response devoid of truth. And mm-hmm. that will leave that will leave people the latter will leave people empty and mm-hmm. and craving for another high rather than mm-hmm. leaning into truth that will sustain them when emotions are absent. And I've had, as a Pentecost, I've had some amazing emotional experiences, but I've also had some of the most profound experiences in worship and in ministry and in discipleship in life. And I have felt, so if I went on my emotion, I'd be said, well, nothing happened there, but actually profound things happened. And there wasn't necessarily an emotional response to correlate mm-hmm. with that, but it was a truth response. So I, to me, emotion is bonus, but shouldn't be discounted, mm-hmm. but it mustn't yes. be at the center of our our goal as communicators Mm. when we are presenting Jesus. Mm. I love that. Emotion has to be rooted in something, something deeper. Well, John, let's leave that there. And I have some questions for you next time about the 3000 people. I have some, some questions about, about some parallels in that, but let's leave that till our next episode. Fantastic. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch with either of us about something we said, you can reach out to us on podcast at twotexts.com or by liking and following the Two Texts podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
If you really did enjoy the episode, then we'd love it if you left a review or a comment where you're listening from. And if you really enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend? Don't forget that you can listen to all of our podcasts from this season and others at www.2text.com. But that is it for now. So until next time, goodbye.